called to the rich man by the name of Dives. I'm not certain if that was his name. Scholars have also debated back and forth as to whether or not this is a parable or a true story. I'll tell you my thoughts on it, but I want you to remember and keep in mind that those are my thoughts. Uh, there's no clear evidence that make me solidly in one category or another as to whether or not this is a parable or a story. I think that this is a real story. If the men that are mentioned by name are imaginary men, perhaps changing the names to protect the innocent, this story can be told over and over again throughout the eons of man's history. Let's read the scripture and uh, then we'll break for prayer. There was a certain rich man, Luke chapter 16, verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fed from the rich man's fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so, that, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all of this, betwixt, between us, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those pass from there to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he, Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one raised from the dead. Some very serious thoughts for our consideration this morning. Some things that we should pay careful heed to and make preparation for our life is preparation ground for eternity. Before we get into the lesson, though, we have wonderful privilege of going to God for prayer. Let's humble ourselves in some fashion while we do so. In the scriptures, we learn at least four truths about the place that has been created for the devil and his angels that is called hell, or sometimes called Hades in the word of God. In Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46, we'll be reading some very lengthy passages of Scripture during the lesson this morning. We read that Jesus is teaching, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, 
Then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides the sheep from his goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did, you, when did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. I was thirsty, I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The point that I want us to draw out of this, and there's much from the reading and here in Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46, that could be gleaned about hell and about eternity. But the major point that I want us to take away from that this morning is the point of separation, the point of judgment, of division, and how the separation is into paradise, into heaven, or into glory, or into Hades, into everlasting punishment versus eternal life. The contradistinction between heaven and hell is drawn out stronger here in this passage of Scripture, perhaps more than any other passage. I want you to know this morning that the Bible teaches that the final judgment will be so final that the righteous will enter into heaven to enjoy everlasting life. The wicked will enter into eternal punishment. And the thought of everlasting punishment, this is the distinction here, is repulsive to many. In our society today, we don't like to believe that. We want to think that there's always an out. There's always another way. There's always another chance. And perhaps there's good reason for that because God is a God of second chance. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for his mercy and for his grace that he has extended to us over and over again, but there's coming a time at the final judgment when those chances will be gone. Those opportunities will be run out. No doubt, too, the problem, the, this aversion to the idea of uh, eternal punishment is, a, is the bottom of much of the unbelief about what the Bible teaches about hell. Many people, for instance, today believe that 
the final judgment that hell is going to be destruction. That a person's going to die, their spirit's going to go to hell, and they're going to be destroyed and not live in everlasting punishment. That's contrary to what the scripture teaches. Hell, despite of the denials of many, is very real. Sin demands it. We talked a little bit last Sunday about why God gave up, because people rejected him, because people chose sin, chose idolatry over serving God. We understand from the scripture that sin is a violation of the law of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the apostle writes, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Folks, if there were no punishment for sin, then there could be no reason, no foundation for the law. Law without penalty, law without punishment is null and void. It's a joke. It's a laughing matter. I think because of our society and our response to punishment, our response to discipline, whether it's societal or parental, parental discipline, I think that too lies at the bottom of much of the unbelief of hell. Sin without punishment, sin without penalty, also would make the death of Jesus Christ our Savior useless because there is no penalty for sin. There is no need for him to have died. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes as we do every first day of the week, just like the Scripture teaches. Remembering in that memorial meal the blood that he shed, the body that he had that was broken for us. If there were no penalty, punishment for sin, his death would have been in vain. The reality of life after death also demands the reality of hell. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 through 33, the same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, and left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all were husband to her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus took an instance where the Sadducees had a severe misconception, a misunderstanding of the law, and a severe misunderstanding of the character of God and the reality of eternity. And he changed it from what their misunderstanding was after he corrected them to pointing them to the reality that God is the God of the living. Therefore, our conclusion this morning from this passage is that when we die physically, we're not dead. We live eternally. We are alive 
forever. In the account that we read for our text for the main body of our study this morning, the account of the rich man and Lazarus, two distinct destinies are presented. Comfort for the righteous or punishment for the wicked. You see, in our first lengthy reading in Matthew 25, we read and we understand that hell or Hades was prepared not for man, but for the devil and his angels. Again, verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from you, cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, we read in Jude chapter, uh, verse 6, that the angels who did not keep their proper domain, domain but left their, former abo- left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This states further that fallen angels who fell with Satan are placed in chains awaiting judgment in everlasting punishment. Yet men and women, by rejecting God, as we talked about last week, and choosing sin, choosing idolatry, rebelling against the law of God, choose that same destiny. They too are awaiting judgment. They too will face the same fate that these fallen angels have brought upon themselves. Number two this morning, I want you to understand that hell is not contrary to the nature of God. We rejoice and celebrate and are thankful for the fact that God is a God of love. But many people today find it difficult to accept the reality of hell because they cannot believe that a loving God, a God who is merciful as he is, could or would create such a place. Friends, this morning, hell is not contrary to the nature of God. If no punishment were given for violation of his law, then God would not be just. God would not be fair. He is a just God. He will reward the righteous with everlasting joy and comfort, and we look forward to that. But because of his justness, because of his righteousness, he also will reward the wicked with everlasting punishment. You see, hell is not contrary to the nature of God. It is prepared for the devil and his angels and for men and women who rebel against him. So who's going to hell? Who is going there? We've already noted that Satan and his angels will be there. Verse 41 in Matthew 25 again. Revelation 21 verse 8 though elicits this a little bit further and says... The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those who do not know God, those who will not obey the gospel, will be punished with everlasting destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In short, this morning, 
make it very clear, all sinners who choose to remain in their sin are bound for hell. And they will be found there unless they repent. Why do people go there? We've already discussed one. Because they refuse to honor God in their lives. They refuse to submit themselves to God's law. God desires that all men will be saved. Don't we understand that? Don't we know that? We'd love to, pro to project that to everybody, to society today, to encourage people to obey the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's desire. That is God's will. That is his want for mankind. God is all-powerful. And the gospel is his power to save. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The apostle Paul proudly and boldly proclaims, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. God can save to the uttermost. One man said when in my childhood, what God can save from the guttermost to the uttermost. People will not be in hell because God will not save them. God will save anybody when they meet his conditions. You see, God sent his only begotten son into the world so that men might have salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did you catch that? The price for our redemption, the price for our salvation, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That little word should is important. It leaves an opportunity for them to be punished. God has extended his invitation to all who would come to him. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who, are labor and are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus didn't say that there's no burden, no yoke, no hardship in being a Christian. In fact, he often said quite the opposite. But Jesus did say, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In another place, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Yes, we have responsibility. Yes, there's a cross to bear. But it's easier and it's lighter than that of the world. It's easier and it's lighter, especially in view of eternity. And I think the reason, I think that the parable rather that Jesus used or story that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 16 that we read as our text offers one of the greatest depictions of hell found anywhere in the Word of God. Here we have the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to dive deep into that story just a little bit here this morning. There's two common factors in their death. First of all, we see that they both died. It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of life you've lived, how wealthy you are, all men will die. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this... 
the judgment. Both men died. Both men went into another form of existence where they were eternally alive. The soul died. The body died, but the spirit lived eternally. One is in hell or torments, and the other is in Abraham's bosom or paradise. Let's consider Lazarus' position first. In his earthly life, Lazarus was a beggar, so poor and so weak and so sickly that he couldn't even go out and get a job and have a career. He had to lay in the ditch and beg for a living. In this earthly life, his life, his temporary transitory life, as a preparation stage, Lazarus was just a beggar. Like so many of us, Lazarus had not, little to nothing of this world's goods, and he had to survive on meager, meager fare. This man was constantly in a bad place in this life, in this world. And many people condemned the rich man because he would not help Lazarus. And while that seems to be present in the story, I don't believe that's the main point. Lazarus, whatever his problems were, appears to be a good man. Because after he dies, he's in Abraham's bosom, in paradise. But we never hear from Lazarus again. He's on record as being in a place of comfort, a place of paradise. All we really know about Lazarus is that he was a sickly beggar who died and went to paradise. And there's lessons that we can learn from this. For instance, no matter our situation, we can be faithful. No matter our situation, we can be faithful. No matter how difficult it is, how disappointing things are in our life, how sick we may be, how great our poverty may be, how great our illness may be, we can be faithful. Secondly, we can learn from this that we should be merciful to those who are down and out. I'm not saying we should endorse somebody's sin. I'm not saying we should allow our, evil to, our good to be evil spoken of by supporting an evil cause. But we should be merciful to those who are down and out. There are those who are chronically in need. We need to respond responsibly and generously to them. That's not what the rich man did. No doubt he said, why is that beggar here all the time? Why doesn't he get a job? Why isn't he just like me? Responsible, proud, dignified, and proper. May God help our attitude and our spirit in dealing with those who are down and out. As interesting as Lazarus is, we must spend some time concerning, considering the rich man. You see, the rich man also died. He went to eternity with a different outlook, though. Jesus' point here comes to the forefront. I think we begin to see the main focus of Jesus' story. Many have argued as to whether or not this is a story or a parable. It's really irrelevant. This point is what we need to hear. Let's put ourselves for a few minutes in the rich man's shoes. Let's see what he saw. And maybe we can feel ever so slightly what he felt. And if we do, maybe our life will change for the better. He had been busy looking down his nose on Lazarus. And then he died. We don't know if he got sick and the illness was drug out for months or years. We don't know if it was a sudden death. All we know is that he died. 
He realizes that he has passed from mortal life into an immortal state. A place where he will never die. A place where there was no hope. A place where there was no way out. He realizes that he is incredibly thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty? I have. Working as I used to work in dust and heat, building trailers or uh, painting houses or other things, there were times in the extreme heat that I became so thirsty. I was physically weak because of my thirst. Dehydration is a major cause of illness. We know that today. It causes many, many bad reactions in our body. Not only was the rich man thirsty, he was hot. He had never experienced heat like this. His flesh was sizzling. And I don't think this would be a figure of speech here. You know how it is when bacon is sizzling and popping in the pan? If I understand the torments in hell, that's what he was experiencing all over his body. But he's not disappearing. He's not going away. Just constant pain, torment, thirst, heat, darkness. The darkness isn't presented to us so much in this story, but it is in other places. And so he looks up. Maybe he should have looked up before and gotten a different view before. But this time he looks up and who does he see? But that old beggar again. But now the beggar is in Abraham's bosom and the beggar is, well, he's not sick anymore. Now he's comforted. He's not begging anymore. He's resting. The stench is gone. Lazarus is at peace. And he notices, notices that Lazarus is in the presence of a patriarch. Somehow he recognizes that this patriarch is Abraham. So he calls out and begs for a drop of water. This is a total change in his character. Before he was rich, he had all the goods that he wanted. Whenever he wanted. He could tell a servant, bring me this. And the servant would bring it to him. But now he has to beg. Oh, Lazarus can do it. Lazarus can do it. He can bring a little water to serve me right now. I'm so parched. I've never been thirsty like this. Something has to be done. Something has to change. Let's take a break here. The rich man sees where he could have been. He sees where he could have been. My dad used to say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I've heard it all my life. Preacher, I'm going to get right someday. I'm going to repent someday. I'm going to obey the gospel someday. Daddy used to also say the road to hell is paved with regret. When a person arrives there, they're going to say, I wish I had. I wish I had. The rich man realizes that he could have been in paradise with Lazarus and Abraham resting peacefully. The rich man traded paradise for this world's, for a taste of this world's pleasures. 
Let's remember this morning that this life is transitory. It's temporary. It's passing away. We don't really know what those worldly pleasures were for the rich man. But we can maybe imagine. Remember, we're trying to put ourselves in his shoes. Money, health, fame, power, fulfillment, satisfaction, family, career, fun, jealousy, ease, and comfort. Not all of these are necessarily bad things but things that can and often does derail us. I'm reminded in talking about this of what the Hebrew writer says. Therefore, in, in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and let us run with endurance or patience, depending on your version, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us lay aside every weight. Here in torment, the rich man is alone. No Abraham to comfort him. No angels to sing with. No friends to party with. Some foolishly think that hell is going to be a big place of part, a big party. Hell is a place of loneliness, not of fun. No family to lean on. Some think that they want to go to hell to, so that they can be with the family that they miss. The rich man was worried about his family, as we'll see in just a minute. He asked Abraham to send Lazarus back and preach to them. Because I'm tormented in this flame. He had asked for a drop of water, remember? The rich man desired company, but he did not know about the gulf. The inseparable barrier that was between them. His agony was constant. There was no relief whatsoever. Intolerable pain was nonstop. This was an eternal state. He looked up, too late, and remembered. Daddy used to say that the road is hell to hell is paved with memory. I suppose this could be the worst of all torments. The memories of good times with family. The memories of good times with friends. The memories of vacations and triumphs and disappointments. Close friends and closer family still there. In the midst of the horrendous sizzling heat unending heat, unquenchable thirst, memory of every church service, of gospel songs, mom and dad telling the old, old story, memory of the old people in church who loved them so much, still there, still present in this horrendous, sizzling, unending heat, so hot that you can't cry because the tears evaporate before they leave your teardrops. No relief. No relief. This is talking about the terror in hell. I don't know how to be any more vivid than that. He turns into a teacher. I found, found this interesting when I realized this. That's what the rich man did. I will never forget a dear brother's funeral. Brother Barney Owens had traveled across several states to conduct the services. One of the most faithful men I will ever know. A man had died that I aspired to be like, Brother John Tidmore. 
Barney Owen stood, a faithful evangelist, before a crowd of about 200 people in Valiant, Oklahoma. Friends and relatives of John, mostly from the community, a few from the church. And he said these words which are etched in my memory. He said, I believe I will see John in paradise. I believe that when I die, I will see him there and we'll sing the song of the redeemed when I get home. But I could be wrong. There could be sin in John's life that I don't know anything about. I'm not the judge. If I am wrong, my friend, John Tidmore is in torment right now. He, if I am wrong, John Tidmore is thinking right now about you. Perhaps he's trying to pray for your soul. He does not want your company. The torments of this place are so great that the people there do not want their friends and their loved ones joining them there. We see that painted for us in this picture very, very strongly. The rich man cries out to Abraham. Did you catch that last part? Please send Lazarus back. If you can't send him to me, send him to my brothers. He finally has realized that his wealth was of no consequence in eternity. His money meant nothing. The rich man forgot his own discomfort and begged for Lazarus to be resurrected and commissioned to go preach to his brothers. He had five. He remembers them fondly now. He's begging now. He's desperate now. The shoe's on the other foot. He begs for a special warning to keep his brothers from this awful place. There's no special treatment. Abraham says, no, you made your bed. There's nothing else to be done now. Eternity will spin on and on forever and forever. And you will remember, unbearably thirsty, unbearably hot, forever and forever. The rich man is begging for a telegram to be sent from hell. He wants his brothers to know you can avoid this place. No one really wants to go there. No one there wants you to come see them. This is not a fairy tale. This place is created for the devil and the demons, not for mankind. Again, Matthew 25, verse 41. He will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus was talking about the final judgment when he separates righteous men from unrighteous. And the single qualifying factor is how a person has responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there is one who resurrected already. We don't need another voice. There is already one who lives now, who has already provided an escape. We don't have to go there. The rich man didn't have to go there. This life, this time, this moment is the moment of decision. We cannot afford to play fast and loose. We cannot procrastinate. If a person ends up in hell, he or she is lost by his own free choice. No one to blame but himself. Many see no need to be interested in spiritual things and are indifferent to the pleas of the gospel. Others refuse to obey the gospel or submit to the will of God. Some simply refuse to believe. 
Others simply love sin more than righteousness. Some become unfaithful in their service to God and put off obeying or repenting until it's too late. May I remind you, as we close, Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Hell is will, real. The suffering is for the sinful. But there's an escape that has been provided. Obey Jesus Christ now. He will wash away the guilt of your sin and give you hope of eternal life, eternal bliss in his presence.